a man dies mysteriously. And Spunky Ann Bedingfeld is the only one who discovers the key to his death. Agatha Christie, today on a special episode of the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help us keep going. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. We'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you prefer listening on YouTube, our channel is now up to date. Today, we present a special extensive sampling of our new release, The Man in the Brown Suit by Agatha Christie. This title is narrated by the multiple award-winning narrator Nancy Peterson, and she was nice enough to let me read a few chapters. Today is a healthy sampling of the audiobook, which is now available on Audible and many other online retailers. You can also use your coupon code and purchase it at our website. Links can be found in the show notes for today's episode. We'll be finishing up The Pirates of Penzance on Friday. Until then, enjoy the genius of Agatha Christie and Nancy Peterson. And now, a healthy sampling of The Man in the Brown Suit by Agatha Christie, narrated by Nancy Peterson. Prologue Nadina, the Russian dancer who had taken Paris by storm, swayed to the sound of the applause, bowed and bowed again. Her narrow black eyes narrowed themselves still more, and the long line of her scarlet mouth curved faintly upwards. Enthusiastic Frenchmen continued to beat the ground appreciatively as the curtain fell with a swish, hiding the reds and blues and magentas of the bizarre décor. In a swirl of blue and orange draperies, the dancer left the stage. A bearded gentleman received her enthusiastically in his arms. It was the manager. Magnificent, petite, magnificent, he cried. Tonight you have surpassed yourself. He kissed her gallantly on both cheeks in a somewhat matter-of-fact manner. Madame Nadina accepted the tribute with the ease of long habit and passed on to her dressing room, where bouquets were heaped carelessly everywhere. Marvelous garments of futuristic design hung on pegs, and the air was hot and sweet with the scent of the massed blossoms and with more sophisticated perfumes and essences. Jeanne, the dresser, ministered to her mistress, talking incessantly and pouring out a stream of fulsome compliment. A knock at the door interrupted the flow. Jeanne went to answer it and returned with a card in her hand. Madame will receive? Let me see. The dancer stretched out a languid hand, but at the sight of the name on the card, Count Sergius Polovich, a sudden flicker of interest came into her eyes. I will see him, the maze peignoir, Jeanne, and quickly, and when the Count comes, you may go. Bien, madame. Jeanne brought the peignoir, an exquisite wisp of corn-colored chiffon and ermine. Nadina slipped into it and sat smiling to herself, whilst one long white hand beat a slow tattoo on the glass of the dressing table. The Count was prompt to avail himself of the privilege accorded to him. A man of medium height, very slim, very elegant, very pale, extraordinarily weary. In feature, little to take hold of. 
a man difficult to recognize again if one left his mannerisms out of account. He bowed over the dancer's hand with exaggerated courtliness. Madame, this is a pleasure indeed. So much Jeanne heard before she went out, closing the door behind her. Alone with her visitor, a subtle change came over Nadina's smile. Compatriots though we are, we will not speak Russian, I think, she observed. Since we neither of us know a word of the language, it might be as well, agreed her guest. By common consent, they dropped into English, and nobody, now that the Count's mannerisms had dropped from him, could doubt that it was his native language. He had, indeed, started life as a quick-change musical artiste in London. You had a great success tonight, he remarked. I congratulate you. All the same, said the woman, I am disturbed. My position is not what it was. The suspicions aroused during the war have never died down. I am continually watched and spied upon. But no charge of espionage was ever brought against you? Our chief lays his plans too carefully for that. Long life to the colonel, said the Count, smiling. Amazing news. Is it not that he means to retire? To retire? Just like a doctor or a butcher or a plumber. Or any other businessman, finished Nadina. It should not surprise us. That is what the colonel has always been, an excellent man of business. He has organized crime as another man might organize a boot factory. Without committing himself, he has planned and directed a series of stupendous coups, embracing every branch of what we might call his profession. Jewel robberies, forgery, espionage, the latter very profitable in wartime, sabotage, discreet assassination. There is hardly anything he has not touched. Wisest of all, he knows when to stop. The game begins to be dangerous, and he retires gracefully, with an enormous fortune. Hmm, said the Count doubtfully. It is rather upsetting for all of us. We are at loose ends, as it were. But we are being paid off on a most generous scale. Something. Some undercurrent of mockery in her tone made the man look at her sharply. She was smiling to herself, and the quality of her smile aroused his curiosity. But he proceeded diplomatically. Yes, the colonel has always been a generous paymaster. I attribute much of his success to that, and to his invariable plan of providing a suitable scapegoat, a great brain, undoubtedly, a great brain, and an apostle of the maxim, if you want a thing done safely, do not do it yourself. Here we are, every one of us incriminated up to the hilt and absolutely in his power, and not one of us has anything on him. He paused, almost as though he were expecting her to disagree with him. But she remained silent, smiling to herself as before. Not one of us, he mused. Still, you know, he is superstitious, the old man. Years ago, I believe, he went to one of those fortune-telling people, pre-prophesied a lifetime of success, but declared that his downfall would be brought about through a woman. He had interested her now. She looked up eagerly. That is strange, very strange. Through a woman, you say? He smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Doubtless, now that he has retired, he will marry some young society beauty who will disperse his millions faster than he acquired them. Nadina shook her head. No, no, that is not the way of it. Listen, my friend. Tomorrow I go to London. But your contract here... I shall be away only one night, and I go incognito, like royalty. No one will ever know I have left France. And why do you think that I go? Uh, hardly for pleasure at this time of year. 
January, a detestable foggy month. It must be for profity. Exactly. She rose and stood in front of him, every graceful line of her arrogant with pride. You said just now that none of us had anything on the chief. You were wrong. I have. I, a woman, have had the wit and, yes, the courage, for it needs courage to double-cross him. You remember the De Beer diamonds? Yes, I remember, at Kimberley, just before the war broke out. I had nothing to do with it, and I'd never heard the details. The case was hushed up for some reason, was it not? A fine haul, too. A hundred thousand pounds worth of stones. Two of us worked it, under the colonel's orders, of course. And it was then that I saw my chance. You see, the plan was to substitute some of the De Beer diamonds for some sample diamonds brought from South America by two young prospectors who happened to be in Kimberley at the time. Suspicion was then bound to fall on them. Very clever, interpolated the Count approvingly. The Colonel was always clever. Well, I did my part, but I also did one thing which the Colonel had not foreseen. I kept back some of the South American stones, one or two are unique and could easily be proved never to have passed through De Beer's hands. With these diamonds in my possession, I have the whip hand of my esteemed chief. Once the two young men are cleared, his part in the matter is bound to be suspected. I have said nothing all these years. I have been content to know that I had this weapon in reserve. But now... Matters are different. I want my price, and it will be a big, I might almost say a staggering price. Extraordinary, said the Count. And doubtless you carry these diamonds about with you everywhere. His eyes roamed gently round the disordered room. Nadine laughed softly. You need suppose nothing of this sort. I am not a fool. The diamonds are in a safe place where no one will dream of looking for them. I never thought you a fool, my dear lady, but may I venture to suggest that you are somewhat foolhardy. The colonel is not the type of man to take kindly to being blackmailed, you know. I am not afraid of him, she laughed. There is only one man I have ever feared, and he is dead. The man looked at her curiously. Let us hope that he will not come to life again, then, he remarked lightly. What do you mean? cried the dancer sharply. The Count looked slightly surprised. I only meant that a resurrection would be uh, awkward for you, he explained. A foolish joke. She gave a sigh of relief. Oh no, he is dead all right, killed in the war. He was a man who once loved me. In South Africa, asked the Count negligently. Yes, since you ask it. In South Africa. That is your native country, is it not? She nodded. Her visitor rose and reached for his hat. Well, he remarked, you know your own business best, but if I were you, I should fear the colonel far more than any disillusioned lover. He is a man whom it is particularly easy to uh, underestimate. She laughed scornfully. As if I did not know him after all these years. I wonder if you do, he said softly. I very much wonder if you do. Oh, I am not a fool. And I am not alone in this. The South African mailboat docks at Southampton tomorrow, and on board her is a man who has come specially from Africa at my request, and who has carried out certain orders of mine. The colonel will not have one of us to deal with, but two. Is that wise? It is necessary. You're sure of this man? A rather peculiar smile played over the dancer's face. I'm quite sure of him. He is inefficient, but perfectly trustworthy. She paused, and then added in an indifferent tone of voice, as a matter of fact, 
He happens to be my husband. Chapter One Everybody has been at me, right and left, to write this story from the great, represented by Lord Nasby, to the small, represented by our late maid of all work, Emily, whom I saw when I was last in England. Law, miss, what a beautiful book you might make out of it all, just like the pictures. I'll admit that I've certain qualifications for the task. I was mixed up in the affair from the very beginning. I was in the thick of it all through, and I was triumphantly in at the death. Very fortunately, too, the gaps that I cannot supply from my own knowledge are amply covered by Sir Eustace Pedler's diary, of which he has kindly begged me to make use. So here goes. Anne Bedingfeld starts to narrate her adventures. I'd always longed for adventures. You see, my life had such a dreadful sameness. My father, Professor Bedingfeld, was one of England's greatest living authorities on primitive man. He really was a genius. Everyone admits that. His mind dwelt in Paleolithic times, and the inconvenience of life for him was that his body inhabited the modern world. Papa did not care for modern man. Even the Neolithic man he despised as a mere herder of cattle. And he did not rise to enthusiasm until he reached the Mousterian period. Unfortunately, one cannot entirely dispense with modern men. One is forced to have some kind of truck with butchers and bakers and milkmen and greengrocers. Therefore, Papa being immersed in the past, Mama having died when I was a baby... It fell to me to undertake the practical side of living. Frankly, I hate Paleolithic man, be he Aurignacian, Mousterian, Chelian, or anything else. And though I typed and revised most of Papa's Neanderthal man and his ancestors, Neanderthal men themselves fill me with loathing. And I always reflect what a fortunate circumstance it was that they became extinct in remote ages. I do not know whether Papa guessed my feelings on the subject. Probably not. And in any case, he would not have been interested. The opinion of other people never interested him in the slightest degree. I think it was really a sign of his greatness. In the same way, he lived quite detached from the necessities of daily life. He ate what was put before him in an exemplary fashion but seemed mildly pained when the question of paying for it arose. He never seemed to have any money. His celebrity was not of the kind that brought in a cash return. Although he was a fellow of almost every important society, and had rows of letters after his name, the general public scarcely knew of his existence, and his long, learned books, though adding signally to the sum total of human knowledge, had no attraction for the masses. Only on one occasion did he leap into the public gaze. He had read a paper before some society on the subject of the young of the chimpanzee. The young of the human race show some anthropoid features, whereas the young of the chimpanzee approach more nearly to the human than the adult chimpanzee does. That seems to show that whereas our ancestors were more simian than we are, the chimpanzees were of a higher type than the present species. In other words, the chimpanzee is a degenerate. That enterprising newspaper, The Daily Budget, being hard up for something spicy, immediately brought itself out with large headlines, We are not descended from monkeys, but our monkeys descended from us. Eminent professor says chimpanzees are decadent humans. Shortly afterwards, a reporter called to see Papa and endeavoured to induce him to write a series of popular articles on the theory. I have seldom seen Papa so angry. He turned the reporter out of the house with scant ceremony, much to my secret sorrow, as we were particularly short of money at the moment. In fact, for a moment I meditated running after the young man and informing him that my father had changed his mind and would send the articles in question. I could easily have written them myself. 
and the probabilities were that Papa would never have learnt of the transaction, not being a reader of the daily budget. However, I rejected this course as being too risky, so I merely put on my best hat and went sadly down the village to interview our justly irate grocer. The reporter from the Daily Budget was the only young man who ever came to our house. There were times when I envied Emily, our little servant, who walked out whenever occasion offered with a large sailor to whom she was affianced. In between times, to keep her hand in, as she expressed it, she walked out with the greengrocer's young man and the chemist's assistant. I reflected sadly that I had no one to keep my hand in with. All Papa's friends were aged professors, usually with long beards. It is true that Professor Peterson once clasped me affectionately and said I had a neat little waist, then tried to kiss me. The phrase alone dated him hopelessly. No self-respecting female has a neat little waist since I was in my cradle. I yearned for adventure, for love, for romance, and I seemed condemned to an existence of drab utility. The village possessed a lending library full of tattered works of fiction, and I enjoyed perils and love-making at second hand, and went to sleep dreaming of stern, silent Rhodesians, and of strong men who always felled their opponent with a single blow. There was no one in the village who even looked as though he could fell an opponent with a single blow or with several. There was the kinema, too, with a weekly episode of The Perils of Pamela. Pamela was a magnificent young woman. Nothing daunted her. She fell out of aeroplanes, adventured in submarines, climbed skyscrapers, and crept about in the underworld without turning a hair. She was not really clever. The master criminal of the underworld caught her each time, but as he seemed loath to knock her on the head in a simple way, and always doomed her to death in a sewer gas chamber or by some new and marvellous means, the hero was always able to rescue her at the beginning of the following week's episode. I used to come out with my head in a delirious whirl, and then I would get home and find a notice from the gas company threatening to cut us off if the outstanding account was not paid. And yet, though I did not suspect it, every moment was bringing adventure nearer to me. It is possible that there are many people in the world who have never heard of the finding of an antique skull at the Broken Hill Mine in northern Rhodesia. I came down one morning to find Papa excited to the point of apoplexy. He poured out the whole story to me. You understand, Anne, there are undoubtedly certain resemblances to the Java skull, but superficial, superficial only. No, here we have what I have always maintained, the ancestral form of the Neanderthal race. You grant that the Gibraltar skull is the most primitive of the Neanderthal skulls found? Why? The cradle of the race was in Africa. They passed to Europe. Not marmalade on kippers, Papa, I said hastily, arresting my parents' absent-minded hand. Yes, he was saying. They passed to Europe on... Here he broke down with a bad fit of choking, the result of an immoderate mouthful of kipper bones. But we must start at once, he declared, as he rose to his feet at the conclusion of the meal. There is no time to be lost. We must be on the spot. There are doubtless incalculable finds to be found in the neighbourhood. I shall be interested to note whether the implements are typical of the Mysterian period. There will be the remains of the primitive ox, I should say, but not those of the woolly rhinoceros. Yes, a little army will be starting soon. We must get ahead of them. You will write to Cook's today, Anne. What about money, Papa? I hinted delicately. He turned a reproachful eye upon me. Your point of view always depresses me, my child. We must not be sordid. No, no, in the cause of science, one must not be sordid. I feel cooks might be sordid, Papa. 
Papa looked pained. My dear Anne, you will pay them in ready money. They haven't got any ready money? Papa looked thoroughly exasperated. My child, I really cannot be bothered with these vulgar money details. The bank... I had something from the manager yesterday saying I had twenty-seven pounds. That's your overdraft, I fancy. Ah, I have it. Write to my publishers. I acquiesced doubtfully. Papa's books bringing in more glory than money. I liked the idea of going to Rhodesia immensely. Stern, silent men. I murmured to myself in an ecstasy. Then something in my parents' appearance struck me as unusual. You have odd boots on, Papa, I said. Take off the brown one and put on the other black one. And don't forget your muffler. It's a very cold day. In a few minutes, Papa stocked off, correctly booted and well muffled. He returned late that evening, and, to my dismay, I saw that his muffler and overcoat were missing. Dear me, Anne, you are quite right. I took them off to go into the cavern. One gets so dirty there. I nodded feelingly, remembering an occasion when Papa had returned literally plastered from head to foot with rich Pliocene clay. Our principal reason for settling in Little Hamsley had been the neighbourhood of Hamsley Cavern, a buried cave rich in deposits of the Aurignacian culture. We had a tiny museum in the village, and the curator and papa spent most of their days messing about underground and bringing to light portions of woolly rhinoceros and cave bear. Papa coughed badly all the evening, and the following morning I saw he had a temperature and sent for the doctor. Poor papa. He never had a chance. It was double pneumonia. He died four days later. Chapter 2 Everyone was very kind to me. Dazed as I was, I appreciated that. I felt no overwhelming grief. Papa had never loved me. I knew that well enough. If he had, I might have loved him in return. No, there had not been love between us, but we had belonged together, and I had looked after him and had secretly admired his learning and his uncompromising devotion to science. And it hurt me that Papa should have died just when the interest of life was right at its height for him. I should have felt happier if I could have buried him in a cave with paintings of reindeer and flint implements. But the force of public opinion constrained a neat tomb with marble slab in our hideous local churchyard. The vicar's consolations, though well meant, did not console me in the least. It took some time to dawn upon me that the thing I had always longed for, freedom, was at last mine. I was an orphan, and practically penniless, but free. At the same time, realised the extraordinary kindness of all these good people, the vicar did his best to persuade me that his wife was in urgent need of a companion help. Our tiny local library suddenly made up its mind to have an assistant librarian. Finally, the doctor called upon me, and after making various ridiculous excuses for failing to send in a proper bill, he hummed and hawed a good deal, and suddenly suggested I should marry him. I was very much astonished. The doctor was nearer forty than thirty, and a round, tubby little man. He was not at all like the hero of the perils of Pamela, and even less like a stern and silent Rhodesian. I reflected a minute, and then asked him why he wanted to marry me. That seemed to fluster him a good deal, and he murmured that a wife was a great help to a general practitioner. The position seemed even more unromantic than before, and yet... Something in me urged toward its acceptance. Safety. That was what I was being offered. Safety. And a comfortable home. Thinking it over now, I believe I did the little man an injustice. He was honestly in love with me. 
but a mistaken delicacy prevented him from pressing his suit on those lines. Anyway, my love of romance rebelled. It's extremely kind of you, I said, but it's impossible. I could never marry a man unless I loved him madly. You uh, don't uh, think... No, I don't, I said firmly. He sighed. But, my dear child, what do you propose to do? Have adventures and see the world, I replied without the least hesitation. Miss Anne, you are very much of a child still. You don't understand the practical difficulties? Yes, I do, Doctor. I'm not a sentimental schoolgirl. I'm a hard-headed mercenary shrew. You'd know it if you married me. I wish you would reconsider. I can't, he sighed again. I have another proposal to make. An aunt of mine who lives in Wales is in want of a young lady to help her. How would that suit you? No, Doctor. I'm going to London. If things happen anywhere, they happen in London. I shall keep my eyes open and you'll see something will turn up. You'll hear of me next in China or Timbuktu. My next visitor was Mr. Fleming, Papa's London solicitor. He came down specially from town to see me. An ardent anthropologist himself, he was a great admirer of Papa's works. He was a tall, spare man with a thin face and grey hair. He rose to meet me as I entered the room and, taking both my hands in his, patted them affectionately. My poor child, he said. My poor, poor child. Without conscious hypocrisy, I found myself assuming the demeanour of a bereaved orphan. He hypnotised me into it. He was benignant, kind and fatherly, and without the least doubt, he regarded me as a perfect fool of a girl let adrift to face an unkind world. From the first, I felt that it was quite useless to try to convince him of the contrary. As things turned out, perhaps it was just as well I didn't. My dear child, do you think you can listen to me whilst I try to make a few things clear to you? Oh, yes. Your father, as you know, was a very great man. Posterity will appreciate him. But he was not a good man of business. I knew that quite as well, if not better than Mr. Fleming. But I restrained myself from saying so. He continued. I do not suppose you understand much of these matters. I will try to explain as clearly as I can. He explained in unnecessary length. The upshot seemed to be that I was left to face life with the sum of 87 pounds, 17 shillings, 4 pence. It seemed a strangely unsatisfying amount. I waited in some trepidation for what was coming next. I feared that Mr. Fleming would be sure to have an aunt in Scotland who was in want of a bright young companion. Apparently, however, he hadn't. The question is, he went on, the future. I understand you have no living relatives. I am alone in the world, I said, and was struck anew by my likeness to a film heroine. You have friends? Everyone has been very kind to me, I said gratefully. Who would not be kind to one so young and charming, said Mr. Fleming gallantly. Well, well, my dear, we must see what can be done. He hesitated a minute, and then said, Supposing, how would it be if you came to us for a time? I jumped at the chance. London, the place for things to happen. It's awfully kind of you, I said. Might I really? Just while I'm looking round, I must start out to earn my living, you know. Yes, yes, my dear child, I quite understand. We will look round for something suitable. I felt instinctively that Mr. Fleming's ideas of something suitable and mine were likely to be widely divergent, but that was certainly not the moment to air my views. That is settled, then. Why not return with me today? 
Oh, thank you. But will Mrs. Fleming... My wife will be delighted to welcome you. I wonder if husbands know as much about their wives as they think they do. If I had a husband, I should hate him to bring home orphans without consulting me first. We will send her a wire from the station, continued the lawyer. My few personal belongings were soon packed. I contemplated my hat sadly before putting it on. It had originally been what I call a merry hat, meaning by that the kind of hat a housemaid ought to wear on her day out, but doesn't. A limp thing of black straw with a suitably depressed brim. With the inspiration of genius, I had kicked it once, punched it twice, dented in the crown and affixed to it a thing like a cubist's dream of a jazz carrot. The result had been distinctly chic. The carrot I had already removed, of course, and now I proceeded to undo the rest of my handiwork. The Mary hat resumed its former status with an additional battered appearance which made it even more depressing than formerly. I might as well look as much like the popular conception of an orphan as possible. I was just a shade nervous of Mrs. Fleming's reception, but hoped my appearance might have a sufficiently disarming effect. Mr. Fleming was nervous, too. I realized that as we went up the stairs of the tall house in a quiet Kensington Square. Mrs. Fleming greeted me pleasantly enough. She was a stout, placid woman of the good wife and mother type. She took me up to a spotless, chintz-hung bedroom, hoped I had everything I wanted, informed me that tea would be ready in about a quarter of an hour, and left me to my own devices. I heard her voice slightly raised as she entered the drawing-room below on the first floor. Well, Henry, why on earth? I lost the rest, but the acerbity of the tone was evident, and a few minutes later another phrase floated up to me in an even more acid voice. I agree with you, she is certainly very good-looking. It is really a very hard life. Men will not be nice to you if you are not good-looking, and women will not be nice to you if you are. With a deep sigh, I proceeded to do things to my hair. I have nice hair. It is black, a real black, not dark brown, and it grows well back from my forehead and down over the ears. With a ruthless hand, I dragged it upwards. As ears, my ears are quite all right, but there is no doubt about it. Ears are de monde nowadays. They are like the Queen of Spain's legs in Professor Peterson's young day. When I had finished, I looked almost unbelievably like the kind of orphan that walks out in a queue with a little bonnet and a red cloak. I noticed when I went down that Mrs. Fleming's eyes rested upon my exposed ears with quite a kindly glance. Mr. Fleming seemed puzzled. I had no doubt that he was saying to himself, What has that child done to herself? On the whole, the rest of the day passed off well. It was settled that I was to start at once to look for something to do. When I went to bed, I stared earnestly at my face in the glass. Was I really good-looking? Honestly, I couldn't say I thought so. I hadn't got a straight Grecian nose or a rosebud mouth or any of the things you ought to have. It is true that a curate once told me that my eyes were like imprisoned sunshine in a dark, dark wood. But curates always know so many quotations and fire them off at random. I much prefer to have Irish blue eyes than dark green ones with yellow flecks. Still, green is a good colour for adventuresses. I wound a black garment tightly round me, leaving my arms and shoulders bare. Then I brushed back my hair and pulled it well down over my ears again. I put a lot of powder on my face so that the skin seemed even whiter than usual. I fished about until I found some old lip salve and I put oceans of it on my lips. Then I did under my eyes with burnt cork. Finally, I draped a red ribbon over my bare shoulder, stuck a scarlet feather in my hair, and placed a cigarette in one corner of my mouth. The whole effect pleased me very much. Anna the Adventurous
I said aloud, nodding at my reflection. Anna the Adventurous, Episode One, The House in Kensington. Girls are foolish things. Chapter Three In the succeeding weeks, I was a good deal bored. Mrs. Fleming and her friends seemed to me to be supremely uninteresting. They talked for hours of themselves and their children and of the difficulties of getting good milk for the children and of what they said to the dairy when the milk wasn't good. Then they would go on to servants and the difficulties of getting good servants and of what they had said to the woman at the registry office and of what the woman at the registry office had said to them. They never seemed to read the papers or to care about what went on in the world. They disliked travelling. Everything was so different to England. The Riviera was all right, of course, because one met all one's friends there. I listened and contained myself with difficulty. Most of these women were rich. The whole wide, beautiful world was theirs to wander in. And they deliberately stayed in dirty, dull London and talked about milkmen and servants. I think now, looking back that I was perhaps a shade intolerant. But they were stupid, stupid even at their chosen job. Most of them kept the most extraordinarily inadequate and muddled housekeeping accounts. My affairs did not progress very fast. The house and furniture had been sold, and the amount realised had just covered our debts. As yet, I had not been successful in finding a post. Not that I really wanted one, I had the firm conviction that if I went about looking for adventure, adventure would meet me halfway. It is a theory of mine that one always gets what one wants. My theory was about to be proved in practice. It was early in January, the 8th to be exact. I was returning from an unsuccessful interview with a lady who said she wanted a secretary companion but really seemed to require a strong charwoman who would work 12 hours a day for £25 a year. Having parted with mutual veiled impoliteness, I walked down Edgware Road. The interview had taken place in a house in St John's Wood and across Hyde Park to St George's Hospital. There I entered Hyde Park Corner Tube Station and took a ticket to Gloucester Road. Once on the platform, I walked to the extreme end of it, my inquiring mind wished to satisfy itself as to whether there really were points and an opening between the two tunnels just beyond the station in the direction of Down Street. I was foolishly pleased to find I was right. There were not many people on the platform, and at the extreme end there was only myself and one man. As I passed him, I sniffed dubiously. If there was one smell I cannot bear, it is that of mothballs. This man's heavy overcoat simply reeked of them, and yet most men begin to wear their winter overcoats before January, and consequently by this time the smell ought to have worn off. The man was beyond me, standing close to the edge of the tunnel. He seemed lost in thought, and I was able to stare at him without rudeness. He was a small, thin man, very brown of face, with light blue eyes, and a small, dark beard. Just come from abroad, I deduced. That's why his overcoat smells so. He's come from India, not an officer, or he wouldn't have a beard. Perhaps a tea planter. At this moment, the man turned as though to retrace his steps along the platform. He glanced at me, and then his eyes went on to something behind me, and his face changed was distorted by fear, almost panic. He took a step backwards, as though involuntarily recoiling from some danger, forgetting that he was standing on the extreme edge of the platform, and went down and over. There was a vivid flash from the rails and a crackling sound. I shrieked. People came running up. Two station officials seemed to materialise from nowhere and took command. I remained where I was, rooted to the spot by a sort of horrible fascination. Part of me was appalled at the sudden disaster, and another part of me was coolly, 
and dispassionately interested in the methods employed for lifting the man off the live rail and back onto the platform. Let me pass, please. I am a medical man. A tall man with a brown beard pressed past me and bent over the motionless body. As he examined it, a curious sense of unreality seemed to possess me. The thing wasn't real, couldn't be. Finally, the doctor stood upright and shook his head. Dead as a doornail, nothing to be done. We had all crowded nearer, and an aggrieved porter raised his voice. Now then, stand back there, will you? What's the sense of crowding round? A sudden nausea seized me, and I turned blindly and ran up the stairs again toward the lift. I felt that it was too horrible. I must get out into the open air. The doctor who had examined the body was just ahead of me. The lift was just about to go up, another having descended, and he broke into a run. As he did so, he dropped a piece of paper. I stopped, picked it up and ran after him, but the lift gates clanged in my face, and I was left holding the paper in my hand. By the time the second lift reached the street level, there was no sign of my quarry. I hoped it was nothing important that he had lost, and for the first time I examined it. It was a plain half-sheet of notepaper with some figures and words scrawled upon it in pencil. One seven dot one two two, Kilmorden Castle. On the face of it, it certainly did not appear to be of any importance. Still, I hesitated to throw it away. As I stood there holding it, I involuntarily wrinkled my nose in displeasure. Mothballs again! I held the paper gingerly to my nose. Yes, it smelt strongly of them, but then I folded up the paper carefully and put it in my bag. I walked home slowly and did a good deal of thinking. I explained to Mrs. Fleming that I had witnessed a nasty accident in the tube and that I was rather upset and would go up to my room and lie down. The kind woman insisted on my having a cup of tea. After that, I was left to my own devices, and I proceeded to carry out a plan I had formed coming home. I wanted to know what it was that had produced that curious feeling of unreality whilst I was watching the doctor examine the body. First, I lay down on the floor in the attitude of a corpse. Then, I laid a bolster down in my stead, and proceeded to duplicate, so far as I could remember, every motion and gesture of the doctor. When I had finished, I had got what I wanted. I sat back on my heels and frowned at the opposite walls. There was a brief notice in the evening papers that a man had been killed in the tube and a doubt was expressed whether it was suicide or accident. That seemed to make my duty clear. And when Mr. Fleming heard my story, he quite agreed with me. Undoubtedly, you will be wanted at the inquest. You say no one else was near enough to see what happened? I had the feeling someone was coming up behind me, but I can't be sure. And anyway, they wouldn't be as near as I was. The inquest was held. Mr. Fleming made all the arrangements and took me there with him. He seemed to fear that it would be a great ordeal to me, and I had to conceal from him my complete composure. The deceased had been identified as L.B. Cotton. Nothing had been found in his pockets except a house agent's order to view a house on the river Nemalo. It was in the name of L.B. Cotton, Russell Hotel. The bureau clerk from the hotel identified the man as having arrived the day before and booked a room under that name. He had registered as L.B. Cotton, Kimberley, South Africa, he had evidently come straight off the steamer. I was the only person who had seen anything of the affair. You think it was an accident? The coroner asked me. I am positive of it. Something alarmed him, and he stepped backwards blindly without thinking what he was doing. But what could have alarmed him? That I don't know. But there was something. He looked panic-stricken. 
a stolid juryman suggested that some men were terrified of cats. The man might have seen a cat. I didn't think the suggestion a very brilliant one, but it seemed to pass muster with the jury, who were obviously impatient to get home and only too pleased at being able to give a verdict of accident as opposed to suicide. It is extraordinary to me, said the coroner, that the doctor who first examined the body has not come forward. His name and address should have been taken at the time. It was most irregular not to do so. I smiled to myself. I had my own theory in regard to the doctor. In pursuance of it, I determined to make a call upon Scotland Yard at an early date. But the next morning brought a surprise. The Flemings took in the daily budget, and the daily budget was having a day after its own heart. Extraordinary sequel to tube accident. Woman found stabbed in lonely house. I read eagerly. A sensational discovery was made yesterday at the Mill House, Marlowe. The Mill House, which is the property of Sir Eustace Pedler, MP, is to be let unfurnished. And an order to view this property was found in the pocket of the man who was at first thought to have committed suicide by throwing himself on the live rail at Hyde Park Corner tube station. In an upper room of the mill house, the body of a beautiful young woman was discovered yesterday, strangled. She is thought to be a foreigner, but so far has not been identified. The police are reported to have a clue. Sir Eustace Pedler, the owner of the mill house, is wintering on the Riviera. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this healthy sampling of The Man in the Brown Suit by Agatha Christie, narrated by Nancy Peterson. If you have enjoyed this book, you can purchase the entire audiobook at our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. A link can be found in the show notes for today's episode. It'll take you right there. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. We'll see you again on Friday, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.